need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, you know him and you love him. He's the marathon man. It's Andy Greenwald. I don't think that's what that movie's about. No, it's not. But he runs. He runs a okay. lot in that movie. Yeah, and he does something else that seems very foreign and exotic. Uh, he goes dentistry? to the dentist. Yeah, dentistry. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to the dentist yet? Because um, they have reopened the dentist's. What's up, everybody? It's The Watch. This is Chris and Andy. It's a podcast about television. I mean, we've been doing some video breakouts, so I think people can people can know if we've if we've had work done. Yes, on our fronts. I, I have slightly British teeth, so I'm not I, I I don't I'm not worried about that. Like I I don't. There's only so much a dentist can do for me. You know. Are, are you gonna go to what will you What will you have first again in your life? A haircut or a teeth cleaning? Uh, that's a great question. Um, Thanks. You know, I think you're putting me on the spot there a little bit. I don't know what I prioritize. What about if you decided? Because you have great hair. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I, what would you say? Um, I enjoy getting my, a haircut more than I enjoy getting my teeth cleaned. Good point. So, you know, but look, I, I this is, is, should we make this a reopening podcast? Like, should we, should we just talk about like all the things? That we're excited to do again because I I'm not that excited about any of them to be honest. Uh, you're not excited to go to Tenet, the Christopher Nolan movie. In, in... Are they going to do that? Like, they pushed so they pushed it back. They pushed they Tenet pushed back. in a couple weeks, but like, so I, look, let's just do a little house cleaning here. We're going to talk about um, the second episode of I May Destroy You on HBO. Yeah. We're going to talk about the penultimate episode of Top Chef season 17, mm-hmm. All Stars Los Angeles. And later in the show, unless I'm wrong, and right. as I was reminded, I am less than 33% equity of this podcast. I think you and Kaya have bought out my shares. There's also some shadow investors. <laughs> Are there? <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Um, an interview that I did uh, with my 28% <laughs> market cap with my favorite rock band of the moment, um, Australia's own uh, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever, who have been on the podcast before. I know. And- they're like, they're multiple, multiple appearances on the watch. It's great. And they did a performance of a new song from their new album, Sideways to New Italy. Um, and I got to talk to them about the new record and stuff. So that's going to be the the end of the podcast. But before all that... Yeah, the only two things I really wanted to talk to you about were Tenet, the, the headlines of yeah. this week. Tenet and the, um, the really tough news that I think we haven't really processed yet as a podcast, which is the imminent disappearance of HBO Go, you know? Um, <laughs> which I think... I think it's tough, you know what I mean? Like as a as a as a real a go guy, you know, mm-hmm. that was really my way in to HBO. I don't think I really understood HBO until Go came through. Uh and it really helped me understand that it was okay to be weird. It, you know, it's strange. It's strange to have these conversations because there is this reality. So for people who aren't who who aren't as as deep in the culture as we are, <laughs> There was some confusion recently when Warner Media launched their new streaming service, HBO Max, uh-huh. which you get for free if you subscribe to HBO or HBO Now, but it isn't HBO or HBO Now. And if you have HBO on your TV and you pay for it through your cable provider, if you, you want to watch it, get it. On, on your yeah. computer, you use HBO Go. So yeah. I can't believe I just did that off the top of my head. Please feel free to fact check that. But my, my, the, but what I'm going with this is it was a little confusing, mm-hmm. and you know we've we've discussed that at length. And I, 
And I think that that is definitely borne out by this latest decision to kind of shut down one of them, but still not combine any of them. But it's bizarre because I guess this is what happens when a major company is making all of its decisions in the present for the future. Like, and it, 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 I've never been made to feel less important as a consumer at this moment in terms of navigating this because they're not worried about there, I mean, and I, and I don't mean this like I'm some some victim here or people like us. We have found our way into using HBO Max. It's pretty good service and we're enjoying it. But, you know, me with my slight inability to understand which HBO is which and also my uh, bleeding heart, which sort of feels like it's a pure brand and shouldn't be corrupted. I am not the I'm not what they're worried about right now. Right. That is not the concern. And it's a little bit, you know. I guess uh, it's a little bit of an ego hit to be like, I guess that doesn't matter. Well, I, I was being, I'm obviously being facetious about my go allegiance, but I do think that uh, we are in an era where the platform is the content. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's more about how you are, uh, how you are watching rather than what you are watching to some extent. So it was really interesting to see this is now the second major, uh, you know, streaming launch that has then gone through enormous changes at the last minute in the opening weeks of its launch. Obviously, Quibi made some adjustments into whether or not you could only watch it on your phone or, or, or kind of a mobile device to, I think, allowing it to be watched in other formats. And now HBO, which launched... Do you, do you, do you think the core problem with Quibi is that people were like, I want Quibi, but they won't allow me to watch it the way I want to watch it. I'm sorry that does seem like some deck chairs on the 11 minute long version of Titanic. Yeah, well, that's be that as it may, I think and I think HBO Max obviously has a little bit more going a lot more going for it than, than uh, not does. go. Poor choice of verbs. But you know, it, it, they they launched with a three-prong launch of here's how you watch HBO in all these different ways. If you want to have HBO, but you don't want to pay for anything else, you can get HBO now. If you want to watch HBO online and you already have HBO, use HBO Go. If you want to just watch it on TV, you just watch it on HBO. And if you want to do all these things at once, you can do it on HBO Max. And I'm not even sure if that's actually the case. But I think that they realized very quickly, like, we need to... we We need to, like... Yeah, we need to streamline and we need to make our message more clear. This is coming out of a place, and this is the collision between Southern California and Northern California in some ways. I mean, I know that I know that AT&T and Warner is not based in Northern California, but this is like the collision between tech and show business. Because show business is like, explain this to me in the rot in the elevator. Explain this to me in, you have 10 seconds. You have 15 seconds to explain this to me. They are launching these things and then they're like, but we can't. We can't do that. <laughs> we don't know how to explain this multi-prong launch without a YouTube video for people to watch. And that is and that is obviously getting in the way of, wow, this thing has like a really great library well, and Love Life is a really good show. It's There's no reason for this to exist other than the long-term health of a major media company. Now, secondary to that, it's providing a service that I think is, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not not compelling. Like we've talked about, there's a lot of stuff on there, as you said. And like, you know, for the Daddingtons out there, the Studio Ghibli stuff alone is worth the price. But it is hard to make a case just purely like in terms of a creative, you know, an elevator passion project, the evolution of culture, elevator pitch version of this, when it's like all the stuff that you kind of like, we're just all going to put it in one place for the foreseeable future. That that doesn't 
that's not a natural evolution. That's they're literally jumping the track from one version of media reality to the next version. And I, it's the right call, you know, and there's a reason why. And we keep referring back to that great, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter kind of TikTok of how this service got built in such a short amount of time. Why they were like, we're going to do this quickly. We mm -hmm. are just going to get this done. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to see how it all how it all sorts out. Um, I think also there's probably some inevitability to this eventually all being one thing. But to launch effectively killing HBO as a brand would not be <laughs> that's not the story you want to lead with. So no, there, it, it is there has to be this growing pain. There has to be like, well, there's HBO, which is still separate, but then there's HBO Max, which holds some of the brand's equity, but also is all this other stuff. It, it, I think that there is going to be some growing pains, but I don't know. I just thought it was a really interesting, you know, the fact that I, it, it'll be interesting to see if Peacock has to do something similar. Well, Peacock is, you know, both rushed to market in one on the one hand, but also is slow walking it because there are people who have it now. Yeah, right. And and the one thing that you know they can steer into. I mean, we I think when we talked about Quibi, like Jeffrey Katzenberg was all out in front, being like, "Well, we had terrible timing and terrible luck to launch during a global pandemic, and no one is commuting anymore." That may be the case. It is also a convenient cover story um, that may buy them time to address the underlying concerns. Right. The, the the effects of this moment on Peacock are also profound because there's no Olympics, which is why it was launching. The original series that they hope to have on air, I think some might be ready by the fall, but in general, right. most of them are being pushed at least a year. So that gives them some cover to sort of slow to slow walk it um, in an interesting way. Question for you, since I, you mentioned Tenet, and I did yeah. want to talk about, I did generally, I, we, we haven't planned this, but since we're doing a little little industry talk, where things stand at the moment, does the emergence, the sudden, both by necessity and maybe now for economic reasons, emergence of video on demand as another plank in this monthly outlay of cash that media consumers are being asked to spend? Yeah. How is that affecting things? So your, your, I, just, your, your boy spent 20 bucks on King of Staten Island this weekend. So that's what I want to talk about. So we also wanted to watch King of Staten Island. And for people who don't know, that's the new Judd Apatow movie, Pete Davidson, et cetera, et cetera. Um, was supposed to be a theatrical release, and it's not. It is now available uh, on demand. And if there's anything that um, Sean Fennessy's favorite movie of the year, Trolls World Tour, has taught us, it's that there clearly is fi great financial opportunity in the straight-to-video release, especially for a certain segment of, of, of movie going. So, but I we thought we might fire it up last night as well, and I had sticker shock. Now. Did you can really? I, yeah. Can I yeah. spend 20 bucks to go to the movies? Yes. Can I spend 20 bucks for an enjoyable evening of entertainment? Yes. I'm not saying it's not worth that price. But it did cause me in that moment to pause long enough to avoid doing it. And one of the reasons why, now this is an extreme Daddington comment, is that by the time your boy and Mrs. Your Boy were settling in for a night of redemptive comedy, <laughs> It was like eight fifty. I did the numbers. I ran not a, the math. It's, it's not a, a short film. It's a two-hour film, and I was like, if we put out the twenty bucks now, what are the odds we're going to make it back for the second hour or whatever of this movie before our rental window expires? And I was like, so here's here's how I did it. So so we 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 aborted, and we're gonna have to revisit that maybe tonight. I uh, I recommend the film. I found it very enjoyable. It's very long. 
It has some subplots where you're like, we didn't need this necessarily. It's an Apatow movie. It also has a couple of scenes that like, I think will stay with me for a very long time. Uh, the Including really pretty incredible performances from Steve Buscemi and, and Bill Burr. And Marissa Tomei is awesome in this movie. Uh, also, I really shout out to her Grub Street oh my uh, diet. Did you read that? I, I, I sent it to you in all caps. Uh, that's right. You were like emergency I, podcast. That's right. I, we almost did an emergency podcast for Marissa Tomei's Grub Street Diet from last week, which people know that's our favorite running feature on the internet. And that you've written it, one. It, 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 thank you, yes. You, not I, only did you write one, I dare say it's, it's your like... It's your masterpiece. It's the it's the piece of writing I'm most proud of in the last <laughs> decade, and it's also the longest one they ever ran. And that's including like other people's work uh, that I've that I've written. No, I read. mean like it's the piece oh. of writing that you're most proud of, including like. <laughs> other yeah, people's no, work. no. The art critic of the New Yorker's "I'm Dying." Here's what art has meant to me. Essay was fine, but when I was like, I got her sour cream and onion potato chips. Holler at me. That was like that moved me. So, but what I wanted to say about this, and we'll come back to King of Staten Island, but. This is a TV podcast. I know many of our listeners have taken great pleasure in Tim Robinson's "I Think You Should Leave" sketch comedy show on Netflix, which is which is second only to my Grub Street Diet, one of the great pieces of work <laughs> of this of this new century. And there's the sketch that people know very well from the first episode, where Vanessa Bayer is uh, with some other ladies and they're brunching and and they're doing the the sort of Instagram thing where you're yes. like, you know. Out here slobbing trash <laughs> with these pig dicks or whatever, yeah. and she's like, "You're doing it wrong." Marissa Tomei, who seems like a lovely, fascinating, heart in the right place person, it is the Grub Street equivalent of that because she's basically <laughs> like, "This week in America is so raw and important and righteous. I am a disgusting mammal, and I had to shovel warm." room temperature mush into my maw merely to stay alive to keep the fight in the streets another day. She's like warmed up some lamb stock, <laughs> choked it down while dry heaving at the state of injustice in the world. It is a masterpiece of the yes. form. So shout out to King of Staten Island for, for satellite producing content like that. I really like the movie. I would also say this. I rented it on Thursday night. Like okay. when it, it, I think it, whenever it was like released on Apple, I, re, I, I, I watched it about half of it and I finished it Saturday morning. So I had, the, nice. I took, I took advantage of the full 48. That's a, uh, I don't, that's not the that, way it was meant to be watched. That's but it a was, child-free window. Just going to comment part, on that. And I was going to say that, man, because I was like on non-Daddington Island, there's a lot more real estate to play with. Mm. Multi-use facilities. You know what I mean? Because I feel the ocean <laughs> lapping at me from all directions. <laughs> it's getting closer. <laughs> so we did that. I I watched a ton of stuff this weekend. I I watched King of Staten Island. I watched uh, Insecure, which I've really enjoyed this season. Uh, obviously, I may destroy you. And I also watched um, the underseen and underappreciated Kristen Stewart uh, underwater horror movie Underwater that came Great out this name. year. Yeah. Okay. So wait, but let's talk about the two structural questions underlying all this. And sure. The one is. What role do you think this, you know, I, I guess it's the same question. So there's the one question, which is, as people are being asked to spend more money for these various services, and we have more and more choices, suddenly there's this other plank being placed in front of us as well, which is watching new movie releases for $20 a pop at home, which yes, is that you have to finish in 48 hours. The second part of that question, and, and feel free to tackle them both as one question is, 
is anyone actually going to go to a movie theater again this year? And Tenet, you know, Nolan seems insistent. And I wouldn't, on getting it out there, they keep kind of pushing it, you know, a couple weeks at a time. I completely believe, and people know this, I'm a, you know, a cineast from way back. I would only want to see a new Nolan movie in the theater. I mean, I would, I would go to the theater to see this movie, but I'm not going to a theater for the foreseeable future. Where do you see this standing at the moment? I think in multiple industries, we have seen that saying, I don't know, is not a viable option. Right. Why that is necessarily, I think is different for each industry. But as we're seeing in the NBA, as we're seeing in the NFL, as we're seeing in film and television, specifically the theatrical experience, saying, yeah, I don't know when we're going to go back. We're just going to have to see. It doesn't seem to be an acceptable response. Now, I understand that there's also a lot of like financial stuff tied up in there. You know, you can't just be like, we're just going to put this on hold, but continue mm-hmm. to invest in somehow. As far as Tenet goes, and Tenet, be, and Tenet is a really good example of this because it's been, it's been the football that they are moving incrementally. First it was, there is no release date, then there was a release date, now it's being pushed back a little while. Mm-hmm. And today in the Times, there was an article basically saying that Nolan is the one who wants this to be in theaters, that Warner is fine putting it on hold, and Nolan is like, we, gotta, we should do this. He's not quoted in the piece, but it's, it's, it's that, that's his intention. I think I speak for everybody. I'll go to the movies when it's safe to go to the movies. And when it's safe to go to the movies, I'll go to the movies as much as I fucking can. You know, like, yeah. uh, it, it's it's really, like, actually not that deep. <laughs> you know? Like, I yeah. think we're actually, like, there. there's a little bit too much, like, nobody is forcing us to make this choice. You know? Like, totally. you, you just really sh- shouldn't... I, I don't want anybody to lose their job, and I don't want an industry to collapse, but it's it would be so terrible for something to go wrong here when it feels like we are chasing it down to try and make things go right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to have this conversation without having the larger macro one, which I don't think either you you or I are suited to have or really want to have, which is shrug emoji is not a federal response to a catastrophe. And the idea that, well, everyone's going to make their own choices. Stuff's dangerous, but the economy is what matters. I mean, it trickles down, right? And so the idea that all industries are basically being left alone to figure this out as best they can. And more crucially, all, I was going to say consumers, which is kind of a dark capitalist way to say citizens, but all citizens are basically being asked to shoulder whatever burden they're comfortable with, man. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Shrug emoji. So yeah, they, as you said, they can put this in theaters and some people will go and it'll be what it'll be. But just because something's open doesn't mean people are going to start behaving normally because it's not normal and it's not going to be normal for a long time. And I appreciate the optimism and I appreciate the devotion to cinema. And I I wish that we were all going to have a relatively normal summer in some ways. And if going to a blockbuster movie for a couple hours can take you away from what's going on in the world in a healthy way, that's terrific. But I can't help but think, and I've thought this for a long time from a distance, that the only people who really know what they're doing in movies are the people who make the Fast and the Furious movies, which I've never (laughs) seen. And because they just seem to just deliver the goods of exactly what people want year or every other year after every other year. And so I keep coming back to the fact that before we even started to understand what was facing this country in the world, they were like, peace out, see you in a year. 
No sure. beating around the bush. No, right. like, we'll see. No, you're going to watch it at home. No, we're going to watch it, quote unquote, this fall. They were like, nope, shut it down. See you in a year. And that st- stuck with me. Right. Right. And there's a lot of there's a lot of jockeying going on for release dates. I think that we're going to start seeing this a lot in television, too. I think we'll start seeing some shows that we expected back in the fall to just be like, it's just going to be a while. Like, because yeah. we're not going to put up what we have and then drop the other three when we can get back to it. Um, the continuity questions, both in terms of story, but in terms of production, are too complex that I would not be surprised if if a lot of the shows that we expected to see early in 2021 are like much later in 2021. And a lot of the shows that we were expecting to see in the fall just aren't finished. Yes, and the next thing I'm curious about, and I, and I wonder if, if shows that fall under this... Um, the shows that fit the bill of what I'm about to say, if we'll even ever know the truth about it or if we'll just surmise. But if if you're a network or streaming service and you're looking at a project, maybe even you have a pilot for that project already and the show is essentially about whether it's an action show and there's a lot of fighting or it's a sexy romantic show or any show that just in order to correctly tell the story requires the kind of proximity uh, on set that is going to be, or size, scope, that is going to be an issue for the foreseeable future, even under the safest conditions, are they just going to say, press pause? Yeah. Now, who will think of the erotic thriller tours? <laughs> I mean, there's no Cinemax on HBO Max, by the way. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know where we're supposed to find shows about people calling radio hosts who aren't wearing much clothes <laughs> to tell them about their sexual exploits that then they reenact with slow jazz playing. Just saying. But... The economics is different across the board, and that's what you kind of can't speak to, which is like a, net, a broadcast broadcast networks need to have their season to satisfy advertisers. A Netflix has so much stuff that they could theoretically say, we're just going to re-slot that into 2022 and let it roll. I, you know, it's, I, it's I have a question for you. Case. Yeah. One of the things that we've sort of been chewing on for the last, I think, year here is like the incredible pace at which culture moves and the feeling like if you do not get on the elevator on the on the first floor, like it just leaves without you. And sometimes that is, you know, you you at least feel compelled to try and catch up. But sometimes it's like I don't think that shows and movies are getting the space that they could that they deserve to get an audience. So let's say we get to Thursday and you mm-hmm. still haven't watched King of Staten Island because timing hasn't worked out. And we get to the weekend, and then I'm like, hey, Andy, there's this, this, and this we should watch, and we should talk about this. Can you foresee a, th- a way in which King of Staten Island just like slips out of the, the window there for you? Because I think that that is a thing for people, right? I think that happens a lot. And I think that, you know, what one of the things I think we should be tracking both in terms of our own viewing and just anecdotally and, you know, when, when listeners respond with their own experiences, have you already started dipping into your bag of when I get around to it shows? You know, have you suddenly found time to watch the thing that you forgot to watch when everyone was talking about it in the Oscar race two years ago. Um, That's potentially right around the corner, and that's potentially a good thing. Now, The King of Staten Island, because of what it is, I mean, it's an Apatow movie. I enjoy watching his movies very much. And so, and the same thing with the new Spike Lee movie. I'm really excited there's a new Spike Lee movie. I haven't watched it yet. But because of my fandom of those two filmmakers, I will make time to watch those separate and apart from the release window in terms of being a part of the conversation. But you could look at it. I think it's it, there's an optimistic way and a pessimistic way to look at it. You know, I, I, I said this to you. We have, I haven't said it on the mic, but like 
the other week, I finally watched uh, the 2017 adaptation of Howard's End on the stars. Now, that is not exactly finger on the pulse of any known mammal. There's no pulse there at all. It is honestly the ultimate zag. It is for me. Not for me. It's pretty on brand. But but it was it was nice to suddenly be like, oh, here's something that I had intended to see that I think I have a pretty good read on the rate of return. Like, I don't think this is such a wild swing that my wife and I aren't going to be able to see th- these four hours through. You know, mm-hmm. there's a great Haley Atwell performance. You know, I'm a Forster head from way back. Uh, love seeing Matthew McFadden wildly miscast in period epics, but still pretty good. And that was guaranteed quality entertainment for me that was sure. not on anyone's hit list. So I, there's gonna, I think there's definitely, definitely going to be more of that. But one of the directions I thought maybe you were headed with that question was about um, appreciation of things. And mm-hmm. what I mean is, so Insecure ended its fourth season. I have not watched this season yet. I've heard great things. I highly All recommend we- it to anybody. Anybody who maybe was like, oh, I have you know, late, late seasons, like kind of fatigue with it. I thought, I thought this was a fantastic season. People are saying it was the best season. I I really, I've always liked the show um, and just haven't kept up with it. So maybe it, maybe it's my next Howard's end, but Prentice Penny, who's the showrunner tweeted last night and was like, thank you everyone for watching the season. See you again in 2059. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, he's joking a little bit, but he's not joking about who has any idea when it's coming back. And obviously this is going to, uh, bleed into our Top Chef conversation where, you know, the thought that there's a finale this week is bitter, is extra bittersweet. Yeah. Because it's who knows how many years it will be until it comes well, back. And, and who so knows wonder, when rest, what restaurant, the restaurant business will look like. Exactly. So, so I wonder when, when Succession does finish its third season, for example, and Succession, if all the shows we talk about feels like the most dependable right now in terms of it was meant to be on its yearly, like old fashioned, right? Like every, once a year, that show is coming back and We'll be thrilled to see our pals and we'll talk about it and it can run for years and years if and when it finally, well, it will come back. But whenever that is, whenever they're able to finish the season, are we are we going to appreciate it more because That's it a, feels more precious? You know, and I think that there's also a huge conversation to be had about the fact that if film and television production is altered greatly, if not outright, you know, ceased for a while as it is now, but if it doesn't come back in the fall the way I think a lot of people are hoping, or if everything needs to be shot in Iceland or something like that, I, you know, it's going to be a shame not to get stuff that responds to this moment, the many moments that we're having right now. I thought even it it was just really like a brief moment in Insecure, but I I will, I actually, I would rather not spoil anything in Insecure, but I I find that Insecure is very good at, at responding to the moment. And I, I saw the same tweet and I was like, oh, it's it's a shame that we won't have a new season to talk about like the new world we're living in because of because they won't be able to, to safely make it. And I, you know, we we should be glibly hoping, joking, talking that series we love will be able to resume production in South Korea or Iceland or something. But the truth is, American productions are not going to be welcome. So Succession, you know, which has such an outrageous like tarantula like production where they're filming so they, in New York, they can't do a mostly. bottle season at the rehab center in iceland that may be their best bet i yeah. mean I, I i i don't know how i mean i can't even imagine what that line producer's life is like right now but and i and i also don't know how much they had filmed but it's already herculean to, to pull off a show like that at that level um 
of that level of opulence on, in all ways and film it in New York and Iceland and Italy and on a yacht and in London and now should try to cobble it together where if production gets started in New York again, they're not going to be able to just jet over to London to film. Yeah. So they're, they're just so there's just so many question marks. Clearly, we have very few answers, but I we we should pivot to talking about a show that was filmed in London before. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about episode <laughs> really two of do. I May Destroy You, because I think sometimes, you you know, there is an, an inevitable not a letdown, but like a kind of return to earth mm-hmm. for shows that have really strong first episodes like I May Destroy You did. And I did not find that to be the case here. I found that it sustained its um, its energy. It also revealed more layers to the show. And I really, I, I'm, I'm not speechless about it, but I don't know that I've seen a show that deals with such gritty subject matter and yet I find it compulsively watchable, you know, and not guiltily so. No, I think the show is miraculous right now through two episodes. It's exactly what you said. Um, the first episode was such a rush of introductions and both to the characters and to the world and to the tone. And it also had the event, you know, the 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 night that uh, Arabella can't remember, can't piece together where there was an assault. And so the question is, what is the show going to be after that? And in some ways, the watch itself was, you know, it, Shows don't owe us a break. So I, I already regret this phrasing, but I guess what I wanted to say is it was in some ways easier, like less like a horror movie where you know something terrible is about to happen because it's happened. But in other ways, so much harder because now we live in this changed world along with this character and the version of Arabella that we saw all too briefly in the pilot is gone yeah, and isn't going to come back. Um, and what I found so miraculous and just so gripping about the second episode, you know, in addition to the the writing and the performing, and again, just London and a city I don't know at all. And just, you know, the way that they shoot it is just revelatory. The show kind of revealed what it was going to be for the rest of, of the run. And it is a detective story. And it's one of the most harrowing detective stories I can remember seeing on television because it is a detective story where the detective does not want to be a detective, mm-hmm. has no interest in being a detective, and is also the victim. Yeah, and and, and that that relationship where it's all within one person is you know all too true for many people in the world, but fairly radical for the way it's being presented on the show. And I I'm I'm riveted. I think we've talked a couple of times recently about Watchmen and about devs about where we are as viewers in terms of our information stream versus the characters, whether or not the characters are ahead of at the same pace as us or behind us. And obviously, I think we can make assumptions about what has happened to Arabella in this show, but what was really stunning to me last night was the the way in which different characters in this show started to realize things before her. Mm-hmm. Where uh, Terry, played by Waruchi Yopia, who's who's amazing, uh, starts to very early on see that there's something wrong with Arabella. You know, and... Even then, it's not overdone. Like, she still goes to her audition. She's still looking at her phone. She's kind of, like, eating and, like, doing her thing. Like, it's like life is happening in this show in a very real way. But it's also very artful and very dramatic. And I thought that for the second episode, the best parts about it were almost the things that were left unsaid. 
And that was those moments between Terry and Arabella. And it was also like, uh, you know, the honestly searing scene between Arabella and Fumi, the detective that's interviewing yeah. her, which I seen, obviously like we, we, we love crime fiction. We have seen a lot of um, scenes like that or scenes where a detective is interviewing someone or talking to a victim. I've never seen it done like that. And I've never seen someone actualize like the way in which you, you kind of process grief, even if you're grieving yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's, I don't want to be, too expansive here because I want to talk about the show, but it was it, it it was also illuminating to be watching this episode in this American moment too. When we saw that when she does go to the authorities, she doesn't go to the police station. You know, it, it was not. I'm not even sure if Fumi, the character you're mentioning, is a detective or if or if the intake is different. You know, she said sure. if if we if we yeah, feel you may there right. is an assault, you may be moved next door, and so it felt at once both more human but also still so deeply uh, traumatic mm-hmm. as, as an experience. And just also the way the show is never, uh, this is just a sign of such high level writing. They're talking about issues that most shows can't even handle with this level of complexity and grace. And there's still room for more because other people's lives haven't stopped. And I think that's what you were referring to on her friend Terry's face yeah. when Arabella continues up the stairs. And Terry's just like, wait, I, this started with me hanging out with my friend because I need something. And then all of a sudden there's this chasm opening up in front of me and I don't know what to do about that Yes, and how to be there for her because I don't, I can't even reach the her. The stairwell right scene is insane. And, like when she's and, just like, kind of like I'm stuck now I've, I've just like, this has hit me and I'm stuck in this stairwell. Yeah. And, 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 it, and we saw it again at the end where she is so upset at the thought that she had left her friend too at a different time. And she had hurt her friend and not been there for her friend. And yet when, Kwame says, like, it was was the audition that bad? And she's like, yeah, that's what I'm crying about. There's a little bit of truth there because yeah. these are normal, ego-driven people. But we also know, and after just 60 minutes of time spent with them, we know that it's so much more than that that's happening yeah. in each moment. It's I'm, I'm just so dazzled by it. I am too. Do you want to say, should we say anything about last week's Top Chef before we get into your yes. uh, rolling blackouts? We have to. So this is Top Chef finale week. And I think we have a very special episode of The Watch coming up on Wednesday. But I, I, I don't want to like overpromise. Are we deliver? Are we delivering that as its own episode? We are. Well, we'll we'll do know. we'll do something with it. Okay, we got some stuff. We got some stuff coming up this week. But so so this won't be our last comment on it on this episode. But this was such a this was a wild episode. This is an exceptionally good episode. And there was the much like the radicchio, not letting this one go. There was the sweet and the bitter. And the sweet, can we just take a moment to, to celebrate Stephanie? Pub food question mark to completely flooring a table full of Michelin-starred Italian chefs with homemade pasta. That was Top Chef at its best because we love Stephanie. We love her on the show. Everything she does is a victory. But she didn't expect to be able to do that. She did yeah, not she, expect to be here, and she did it. She was in the zone. She was hearing Jimmy because she was like, you know, they top chef, shop chef will fake you out. They'll have Melissa be like, I broke the raft. And then it oh gets my God, I was dying. I, but people, I, by the way, but I'm like, so manipulated still. Uh, yes. 17 seasons of this. And I was like, I cannot bear Melissa 
fumbling here at the goal line. Yes, but she was like, they did the, she broke the raft thing. And then as soon as like everybody looked at the food, you knew that they were going to be like, this is absolutely exquisite. Stephanie was like, I feel pretty good. Everything is going okay. Like, this My is what I wanted to good. cook. Yeah. My food is good. I've tasted it. It, it tastes good. Sometimes she, sometimes they, they don't get to taste the food before they send it out because time is such an, an issue. And I just thought it was really, it was really moving. It was really special, man. She's been my favorite like narrator of the show for a while. Yeah. But like, I, I think that she often doesn't, you know, she's very vulnerable and self-effacing and kind of like, I feel like I'm cooking a little bit above my head here or whatever. And I, I really, really was, was, was proud of her and happy, you know, happy to be cheering for her. It's, it's one of those finales. It's one of those end of seasons where you're like, man, I, it's, it's really tough to choose here. And to the opposite of what happened with Stephanie is what happened with Brian and Kevin, which is those guys kind of like being like, I cooked my ass off. I feel pretty good. Yes. And, and the table just being like, this is not good stuff. We have for the last few weeks talked about how um, Top Chef has been an effective, mic- uh, um, like a microcosm of how kitchen culture has shifted and mostly to the good. But there are still... Um, prejudices that linger even among Top Chef fans or would-be enlightened uh, restaurant goers. Um, And that is that ambition or ruthless ambition is still an art form unto itself. And that is often gendered also in how we see it and how it's expressed on Top Chef. And so we've had a a good laugh, and I, I just did it again, talking about how Stephanie didn't even have a restaurant concept, knowing she would do restaurant wars. Um. But I kind of loved that she excelled for all the reasons you said. She just knew what she wanted to cook and she did an amazing job cooking it. And it wasn't in the, like in that moment when she was in the zone, it wasn't that complicated. Whereas the issues that Brian and Kevin were working out with this food was just pure, um, I don't want to say ego because I don't mean it to be pejorative, but it is a very chefy thing to be like, here's a perfect ingredient. I'm going to improve it. I'm going to aerate this, this Parmesan. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, reinvent the wheel when I have no way to get this wagon down the hill. I mean, wheels are too easy for me. Sure. Why reinvent the wheel of Parm? There, there, it was right there for me. And once again, I, I whiffed it. So that said, Everyone loves Brian Voltaggio. He, it is completely unfair for him to be the sort of straw man for the old version of the kitchen or the old top chef, like the kind of, you know, uh, multi-restaurant having correct food white man in the kitchen. He seems like a truly decent and good guy. And I love having him on the show. I love his rogan laugh. He did not deserve the worst disemboweling I have ever seen in the history of Top Chef. The Italian dudes at the table said to this man, you have no soul. And and were they a little miffed because he was in Italy and he kept saying gracias? Maybe. Maybe. High school Russian, man. What do you want from him? But (laughs) that was so ill. That was rough, rough stuff. And I felt for him. My Voltaggio stock is volatile. Okay. He's, he's been, <laughs> I've bought the dip maybe. Mm. We'll see. Who going into Thursday, and uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk about this before Thursday, but going into Thursday it, it is the only way Melissa can lose is if she basically like 
cook something rotten. I think so because, look, if the finale had been, this is a strange final three. Yeah. The final five was correct. The final three is nice. I like all of them. But I do think that a Gregory or even a Kevin, just for his, just what felt like up until the very last moment, this sort of, you know, relentless inevitability would have made it a more spirited competition. Um, Again, I love Stephanie. I don't have her as as a favorite. And I think that, as you said, I think the only way Brian wins, unless this really, unless being told you have no soul on national television lights a fire, which maybe it should, um, I think the only way he wins is if Melissa screws up. Because a few weeks ago when we were handicapping the finale, the, the finalists, Melissa had all the tools, but she was she was staggering a little bit mm-hmm. on the way to the finish line, and now she's just rolling. Yeah. And it's kind of incredible to watch. It would be a hell of a story if Stephanie won. I think if Brian were to win, it would be a real conversation about cumulative season accomplishments mm-hmm. versus like in this three hour block, Brian outcooked somebody, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's and, hard and, for and me I to think imagine. They still cling to that though. They still I know, cling to that. I know. Well. We've had surprising finales. So I'm really excited for Thursday. And what, what an unexpectedly expansive and thoughtful conversation with my best friend. Hey, I love it. Should we record it next time? <laughs> uh, let's get into your conversation with Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever. So these are talking to two of the guys from the band live from their homes in Melbourne, Australia. The new album Sideways to New Italy, one of the best of the year, came out on Sub Pop the other week. Great to talk to guys in a band about live music now that they can't do it, which is incredibly unfortunate, but they were very gracious to take some time and chat with me. Uh, check out the album on all streaming platforms. And also, Kaya, unless I'm mistaken, we have a song too, right, that we're going to put at the end of this podcast? Yeah, that's right. So they were also kind enough to do an exclusive performance of a song from Sideways to New Italy called Cameo, which I haven't even heard them do yet, but it is a watch exclusive live music on the watch. I mean, what a world. Airhorn. Airhorn, but not aerated Parmesan cheese. Um, enjoy this conversation. Keep your eyes on the watch feed. I think we have some, some fun stuff for you this week. What a time, Baranski's. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's and Netflix have churned up something extra special. When you pop open a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream, you can experience the magic of things that go perfectly together. Just like your Netflix watch list, there's something in a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream for everyone. Follow the sweet and salty pretzel swirls like you follow the plot twists of your favorite drama or dig out a fudge brownie every time you laugh out loud at that new comedy special. With a perfect mix of peanut butter intrigue, pretzel drama, and fudge brownie belly laughs, Netflix and Chilled pairs well with any of your Netflix originals. Look, there's two things I love doing. It's watching TV and it's eating ice cream. And personally, I'm a salty pretzel kind of person. So when I'm just banging out that season of Outer Banks and there's so many twists and turns and, you know, it's like, what's going to happen to John B. in this treasure situation? I really am looking for those pretzel swirls. Honestly, there is the perfect match. So I recommend pairing Netflix and Chilled with Outer Banks, but you can do it with anything. Dig into Ben and Jerry's Netflix and Chilled anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y.com. I am so excited to be joined by two members of my favorite rock band in the world, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever, all the way from Australia, from their homes, Tom Russo and Fran Keeney, welcome. Welcome back to The Watch. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. The most important question is, where are you? How are you? And I guess even more important than that is, what time is it? 
Yes, that's true. The most important, well, I'll start with the most important. It's 10.05 a.m. in Melbourne, Australia. And, well, uh, all things considered, going all right. Um, yeah, we are, it's not as, uh, the lockdowns are not as severe as they were a few weeks ago, so we can at least get together and play in the same room. So, yeah, last week we um, started getting back into rehearsals and uh, uh, it felt good. It felt really good to hear loud music again. I think that's great. I, I don't want to be glib about, obviously, a very serious situation for the whole planet. But when this began and lockdown started, the first thing I thought of, the first unimportant casualty is Bruce Springsteen and little Steven sharing a microphone. Because what once seemed like the pinnacle of rock and roll, like, that's just done forever. Yeah, that's right. Oh, well, for now, for now. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, ritual. No, just for now. It'll be back. Okay, good. I, I appreciate your optimism. So obviously, you guys are here to talk about the second record, uh, Sideways to New Italy. It is out June 5th on Sub Pop Records. I love this record. I loved your last record so much. It's been such a gift to be able to listen to it a little bit early over these uh, terrible few weeks. And I guess I kind of want to set the stage for talking about it, because I, I know that you guys seemingly were on tour forever uh, for the last record. You traveled the world, you thought about it, you processed your experiences, you brought together new songs, you recorded them, and you were ready to go out into the world again, and now you're just sitting with it. And I wonder if that has changed your relationship to this record in any way. I don't know. I, it, I know that the songs sound good. They sound like they're existing at the right time. Uh, the, a lot of the songs came from a feeling of just sort of disconnection, dislocation, just sort of not fit, like being back home after touring a lot and home not really feeling like home and just sort of feeling a bit weird. And a lot of the songs sort of are, are from that. So this is a very weird time and the songs sort of feel like second of the first, the only one, Cameo, they all sort of feel like they're existing in the right time right now. So, yeah, it feels feels good to be putting it out now. I think things feeling a bit weird is a universal statement and i think maybe we'll have a uh, more receptive years than at any other time in human history mm-hmm. um i do want to talk about the experience of of that formed the record though um feel free to correct my characterization of your of the previous year of just it just seemed like you were on tour all the time and for you guys being based where you are in melbourne being on tour means being particularly far away it's not like a band from la you know going over to phoenix or something like when you go on tour you are you're gone what sort of modes do you guys go in as a traveling unit? I can sort of, when having spoken to bands on tour before, I feel like there are kind of two poles. There's sort of the introverted gang where it's you against the rest stops of America. And then there's the opportunity to be more extroverted travelers. Like we will use whatever time we have to soak up the culture, even if it's just for 10 minutes before sound check. Um, is that accurate for your experience? How did you guys grow and evolve as travelers? We, I think I can speak for all of us. Like, I think we love to we love to get out there and um and experience you know what what the world has to offer and it's a great privilege to be able to travel and it's you know all the more bittersweet when when we can't like the tour it, although it's an odd it's an odd mode of travel the um you know the, the musical tour because you're deposited in one place and you've got if you're lucky an hour to see it outside of like the same dingy green rooms and like and stages and I always first thing to do you know load out the gear and then just walk in one direction down the block and just like just catch a slice of, of whatever life's happening and that's like to me is simple but it's always one of the coolest things you just walk down the street and watch people go about their business and I think all of us kind of relish that um, you know that opportunity 
Well, there's something exciting about being an outsider and sort of a, anonymous and unknown and sort of a fly on the wall in someone else's city and scene. And I don't know, at some point it just sort of just starts to really play on you and you think about home a lot and what you want it to be. So I think a lot of the songs have sort of come from that sort of sense. The thing that I, I so appreciate and love about the album is that it, it feels so breathless and alive and it's so clearly the same band that was on Hope Downs, but it's, I'm going to go back to that word alive. It feels like there's little moments of metamorphosis and evolution. And I guess I wonder when you got back together and you brought your experiences and your reflections and the scraps of melodies and songs that you had, did you feel changed? Did you feel like a, a different band or did you just feel like the band had evolved and in what ways was that the case? Well, I think the main thing that we were conscious of when we were back in a room together was what we were getting really excited about playing together. And it, it was when we would just pull it apart and then find some um, jam. I remember this, the, the first song, second of the first, was one of the first songs that we started working on. And we were all just looking around when we had this locked in, like Marcel was on the toms. And um, it was just this sort of, yeah, boogie rhythm. And we we're just like, yeah, this is this is what we want to do. This is why we play together. And that was like, um, so I don't know if it was a sense of sort of change as well as much as it was just sort of digging down on mm. what it is that we are. And that's what we did with all of the songs on this album. We really tried to just find the, our chemistry. And then once we found something that clicked with all of us that we were really excited about, then find the rest of what that song might be. That's what I think is so uncanny about you guys. I was trying to... I'm spending some time thinking about it because, you know, even those of us with small children do have more time to think than we thought previously since <laughs> there's nowhere to go. And, you know, a lot of the famous bands or bands that have sort of famous stories written about them are the sounds of bands that are kind of constantly pulling themselves apart. You know, obviously going all the way back to the Fleetwood Mac model, but bands where you can sort of feel the friction and the tension and the sparks fly from that of people who have very different different ideas of what the band should be or what even a song should be in a given moment. When I listen to your records, I'm just kind of blown away by the chemistry that it feels like, you know, there are three distinct songwriters in the band. Uh, there's five individuals, but sometimes I can't tell whose voice it is in kind of a beautiful way that one person's voice, whether it's a guitar or a singing voice blends so wonderfully with the others and it builds to a larger whole that it's a harder thing to kind of sell. That's maybe not as sexy as they were all doing drugs and divorced each other, but it's something <laughs> quite remarkable. We're working on that. I think you've you've got it. That's the we we for this one we specifically like friend was saying just wanted to lean on our chemistry and it's the sound. I mean, this is sounds like this is sometimes a cliche, but it really for this one we wanted to make it the sound of us, the five of us, like in a room, and like we tried not none of us we made a conscious effort not to overwrite any of the songs before they got in. We'd take a little spark, and we wouldn't go okay. Here's a song, just fill it out. We're just like bring an idea and let the five of us bounce it off each other and I've, yeah, find that that's the way a lot of the most interesting things happen because it goes in direct. You have five brains at it and it goes mm -hmm. in directions that you haven't expected and everyone, you know, everyone brings in ideas and we, we really just like lent on the, the chemistry of the five of us rather than, you know, a single person going, creating a work of genius in their bedroom or whatever. Like that's, it's just a, uh, we wanted it to make, be the sound of us, which is you know how we how we did it originally. So it was a bit of a nod to our what we found was fun in music. Basically, it it feels almost subconscious because you know, and and I, and I wonder if it's similar for you guys as 
various members bring in an idea or a melody or a rhythm. Because what I find with your music is it just sneaks up on me in the most brutally efficient way. Like when I started listening to the new record, you know, like with any new record, you find your way through it. Maybe you don't know all the songs each time. And then you, at a completely different moment, something is in my head. And then when I play the record again, oh, I've been singing Falling Thunder all day. I just don't remember the moment it completely overtook me. And, and there's something kind of dreamy and subtle about that that I love. And I wonder if it's similar to you guys. Is there a, you know, Fran, does, does Tom or Joe play something and it sticks with you and that's the one that wins? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like, it's, it sort of needs you, um, unanimousness, unanimity. Unanimity, <laughs> unanimity nice. At 10 in the morning. Unanimousness. Um, it needs uh, all of us to be um, very excited about it. And then, but it, it's often that, that it's like, oh, wow, what? What was that? What, like, say for example, the the chorus for Cars in Space happened just sort of accidentally. Tom just sort of found those chords, and then it sort of changed the nature of that song because it was a bit more of a dusty road song. And then it just as soon as that those chords came in, it became a lot more claustrophobic. And Joe then started finding this um, sort of almost like Devo. It sort of felt a bit more Devo or um, early talking heads or something and and then everybody's you know concept of the song changes and so yeah but it's it's not a um fluid or natural or something it's for a lot of the songs on this album it actually took just a long time to sort of really piece together these songs find out the world in which they live and then try and find the structure for the song all that uh yeah and a song like falling thunder that was one where Tom had two ideas that he brought to the band and we were all um, like savages, like licking our lips thinking, I think we need to cut that part. Classic two-idea Tom, unbelievable. Yeah, we're playing a lot of these songs going, what about <laughs> if we, you know, take the muscular arms off that song and sew it onto the body of the other song? We're all... Yeah, we were playing God with these and, and creating some Frankensteins, but sometimes, we yeah. always say, sometimes it works, sometimes... um. You know, you know if uh, if ideas fit in the same world in the same song, you just know. And if they don't, it feels like, um, yeah, the body rejects the surgery, and um, and you've created a monster. And that mm. that happened a lot as well. But I feel like there must be some. There's something kind of amazing that can happen with this apparent. And you know, obviously, we're not we're not in the studio with you guys. We don't know how it fully plays out. But this apparent lack of ego, where the truly inspired can float to the top. You know, I, I, She's There is the song that, you know, immediately jumped out to me on my first listen. And it's because I was, I was sure I had heard it before or that it existed before. Now, that's not accusing you of plagiarism. That's because it's that weird kind of untrustworthy nostalgia where it felt so familiar in a beautiful way that it felt like it's something I'd always known. And, and that, again, it's this kind of songwriting unconscious that seems to be able to occur when you're able to correctly... Correctly, it's a strong word. Self-edit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Well, that's nice. It's and that's always like the the goal is to find melodies that are still out there that are still floating in the ether that you need to drag out. That's always the excitement for me and for us. I think when we're sitting down making songs, it's like for us, it really is not about much more than that, apart from playing live. But it's. Like, yeah, ego is not really a thing. I think it's really just been just this songwriting project. And the idea of just finding new melodies and new song ideas has always just been at the heart of our band. Just, yeah. Yeah, still get excited by it. That's, yeah. that's still, to me, the most exciting bit when you've half, when you've 
yeah, pick something out of the air and then you follow the thread. You're like, you've got something here. And there's that. Yeah. It's funny because it takes sometimes it's that split second or that minute where you've got to like grab it before it goes and then everything else flows from there. You know, in a, in a moment when I, I'm, I'm looking down my, my, my playlists or my the LPs that I have in the house and, and I'm realizing that, that less and less of the music that I'm connecting with at the moment is guitar based for, you know, less than at any other point in my life, probably you guys have three guitars in the band, which feels like a provocation. Uh, and I love it, you know, and, and, it, and Tom, what you're saying about pulling it out of the air, it's like, there's something for me as someone who, you know, grew up loving probably a lot of the same guitar bands you, you guys did. And I, you know, I, I gushed about the go-betweens and how I hear some of them in your music last time we spoke. There's something kind of extra beautiful to me about that you guys are still finding those melodies out there at a time when other people may have swapped their guitars for synthesizers or whatever. Yeah, it's you have to sort of trick yourself to find new things just because it's all of the all the notes, all the melodies are sitting right there. But you need to trick yourself into finding new ways mm. to drag the melodies out. Um, and yeah, if if you're just sitting at the end of the bed, if there's one person, there are far less variables. But when you put the five of us together, then there'll be a little spark of an accident, and then somebody else will have an idea off that, and then that's how we that's how these things sort of just come to be. But it took, it took us a while to realize that. I don't know why we've spent enough time together, but for this album, it was like, no, let's write the whole thing together. Like, cause that's a lot of our songs in the past have just come out of accidents like that. Not all of them though, but for this one, we're like, okay, let's just do that for the whole album. It, it meant that it was a very long process writing this album. Um, it was a lot, it was very labor intensive to have to have five people in the room. Um, like songs like Cars in Space, for example, what are some of the other ones? Like Second of the First, a lot of them were just like these long journeys and then they eventually mm. found their home. I think about the guitar bass thing. Um, we, yeah, I mean, this is, <laughs> we, we definitely are a guitar band. We've got lots of guitars. But um, probably what, like a lot of the music I listen to is not even guitar bass now, but this, it's, it's a guitar format and it's, it's still fun to be had <laughs> with you know, to be doing that. And that's, that's the sound of this. But in fact, some of these songs started um, as synth based things and they were, and then they were re um, and then they were kind of transposed onto guitar. So from what I can think, like falling thunder started as a, a little synth thing on the road because it didn't have a guitar, like in the van. Um, I know also um, the only one started as a, a little synth thing. So some of these, it's kind of not even about the format. Like, like I think all of us like playing around on different different forms of songwriting, but and then we just for this for this project, it's yeah, it's us kind of playing guitars and seeing where that goes. So yeah, it's 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 still a a fun format basically. But it's also nice to know that there is a like synth disco version of this album lurking somewhere in your personal files. That <laughs> Joe has a few. Open- on his phone unless he's unless he loses his phone but if this album doesn't take off to the degree you want you could just pull the ripcord and just pivot hard like case of emergency yeah that's so right. I, obviously yeah. we alluded to it at the <laughs> beginning of our conversation uh live music just doesn't really exist right now which is just awful in any number of ways this may be an exercise in painful nostalgia but i'm wondering if this puts even like the lowest moments whether it's like rest stop coffee in Columbus, Ohio, or bad takeout in Antwerp or something. Like, do you miss even the the banal nature of touring right now? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I love I love that. I love sort of that feeling of just being sort of 
in a um, shopping cart, just you know, just shopping trolley, just sort of like pushed onto the through the intersection and just sort of like having no real control of where, where you are. I, I like that. Um, it does have its side effects, and so it sort of does cause a fair bit of um, self reflection. But I, I do like that that sense of just sort of just being. I feel like we there. are also aficionados of like terrible coffee. Like it's almost like we make it make it a competition. So like if you do get you know a cup of watery you know <laughs> black water in Columbus, Ohio, it's like you kind of we all discuss it, like pull it apart, you know, taste it, and kind of judge it. Of why it's so terrible and how it compares to other terrible cups of coffee, and it, we talk quite a lot about it. So it's I do miss yeah even those banal things. You know even that's a gift. And like I said, it's it's always a privilege, and it, it's yeah it definitely is bittersweet. But and live music, obviously, like there's nothing better than being in the room with a lot of people, and you know people are talking about distance gigs and all that, and just don't know how that could work because it's just the the communal thing, the magic of being shoulder to shoulder with a lot of people unfortunately it's yeah it's pretty much exactly what what can't happen right now um and fair enough but um it's yeah that magic can't be replaced by any number of like live streamed gigs or or anything like that i agree i also love that you are appreciative of the very specific terroir of uh american <laughs> diner coffee you know that, that that speaks not to soil but of like you know lack of <laughs> attention and dish soap and reg- and regret you know it's there was a coffee machine at a petrol station in um, the UK that was like <laughs> it was like coughing and spluttering, and it was just like the machine was emulating <laughs> what the previous worker might have been doing. Just <laughs> <laughs> you really know a place through it. Yeah. Do Do you guys feel that in uh, now that you said that you're able to rehearse and play together again, do you have any sense of what surprise turns this might take the band in? Like, w- will you? write another are there more songs to be written are there is there another album to be made since it's all kind of tbd right now yeah i think so we're already writing um we're starting to write again i put the guitar down for a while for a few months because just sort of needed to after the album but yeah it's a nice i don't know whether it's because of the current circumstances where it's sort of the end date or you know all the, the the next gig is sort of unknown or whether it's just now having written our second album but there's sort of a sense of freedom just to just sort of throw anything at the wall. And and, um, and I think that we're all sort of doing that, just like following any old idea down down um, whichever path. And actually we're writing separately at the moment, which might be a nice thing to try. What, you've done the difficult second album. It's done. Now you can just just enjoy yourselves. Yeah. I didn't realise it was so difficult. I didn't realize it was it was fun, but it was really difficult. And now, um, like we worked harder than this than we've worked at worked on anything. And having a producer as well, um, Berkeley, great Australian producer, he really like whipped us in a way that we'd never been whipped before. And like we had to think about every note and every like every rhythm and and melody. And I think we've we've done that now. And we've yeah, and it, like Fran said, now it's just like. And with the current circumstances, like it's kind of like all bets are off. I'm just I'm personally just getting back, you know, trying all kinds of musical ideas and on different things as well, drum machines, like synth, whatever, just just for the for the joy of playing. And, and I think if this is done, if there's any positive side effects, I reckon this has taken off a lot of the pressure. Of, mm. and, and knowing there's this cycle, the constant cycle of tours and stuff, it's like that's off, and that's off for who knows how long. So you might as well. You, know, you can still make music. That doesn't stop that. 
I just love that like the, the the diehard Rolling Blackouts fans will use this interview. They'll trace it to this interview, the disco turn that the band took with their third album. And be like, it was the, it was just one bored guy in Los Angeles who dared them. And everything went off the rails. <laughs> no, Joe's been planning this we'll uh, style takeover. takeover. I saw the fire in your so. eyes. I, it was kind of yeah, exciting. So I the last just just to finish up, I know you guys either have or have graciously agreed to perform, or some combination of you to perform cameo for us, which is so kind and really appreciate that. Why that song? Is it simply it's the easiest to perform in quarantine, or is there something particular about it that made it feel appropriate? I don't know. It's uh, that's. Uh, probably one of the songs that sort of encapsulate the mood of the album the most. I think it's sort of just a sense of um, just sort of reaching forward through time portals. It's uh, pure fiction. Um, it's a love song for someone, like a love at first sight sort of love song, and um, which is just, yeah, just letting your mind run away from you. It's a little bit absurd and fantastical and it's sort of, yeah, it's probably goes to the heart of a lot of these songs. So feels right well we're grateful for it i'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy it a lot and guys it's such a pleasure to talk to you this is the longest distance interview i think i've ever done um but now everybody's just on these screens so it feels normal next time you're in los angeles you choose either the beer is on me or the coffee is on me and if you choose coffee either the good coffee or the bad coffee so it's a choose your own adventure and i cannot wait till i can see you guys again and take and you could take me up on it (laughs) looking forward to it looking forward to it Thank you to Fran and Tom from Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever for that conversation. And one last treat, um, Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever performing the song Cameo live on the Watch Podcast. Enjoy.
Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Ben and Jerry's. When you pop open a pint of Netflix and chilled ice cream, you can experience the magic of things that go perfectly together with the perfect mix of peanut butter intrigue, pretzel drama, and fudge brownie belly laughs. Netflix and chilled pairs well with any of your Netflix originals. Stock up for your next Netflix night anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y.com.